certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. A key forensic witness today told court it's impossible to know one way or the other if Jane Rimmer or Kira Glennon were sexually assaulted. Hello, this is Claremont in Conversation, day 38, with Natalie Bongiolo, Tim Clark and Alison Fan. So I, I guess what you heard today was that it's impossible to read anything into this particular evidence. Well, the defence did try with Martin Blooms, who's a very, very experienced veteran forensic scientist, and um, he is a very, very methodical, meticulous person too. And even though the defence kept pushing the fact that back then in 96 and 97 they weren't their procedures that they are in place today, Martin Bloom said, look, I am a scientist. He's precise in that way. I am also come from a microbiology background. So I was aware of any cross-contamination and how things had to be done a certain way because of his background and because he is a scientist. So even though the defence kept pushing about this, um, what could have been done, maybe things were... He managed to get something out today, and that was a couple of specimens from uh, the rape victim, which is crucial, of course, to this case, could have been mislabeled. There were no labels on two particular samples that were taken from intimate parts of her body. And that was how we finished today's proceedings, that these labels were missing. They weren't there. He got questioned very closely. Could they have been there and taken off? But um, that's how, how we ended today, because it's been a very, very... Uh, for someone like me, a commercial TV reporter, I'm finding it very, very hard going, very, very slow. I mean, as you know, we've got a concentration span of, what, one minute? So I'm finding this terribly, terribly difficult. Tim, Your on the colleague. other hand, who's got to write columns and columns of, of copy, is writing it all down. But I'm finding it very, very hard going. And we are hearing, not from one, one scientist, I think they've dragged out every forensic scientist and pathologist who's ever been in the PATH Centre to give evidence about how careful they've been. So, Tim, would you be able to, to talk us through um, uh, Martin Bloom's uh, evidence today and, and I guess uh, where he started, which was with the intimate samples from the Karakata rape victim? Yes, um, that's so, as Ali said, super experienced. I mean, he'd had long experience even before he joined Pathwest and then spent the last 18 years of his career there, which obviously spanned the, 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 the total time that we're talking about pretty much up until 2012. And in 95, um, he was the scientist who was tasked with um, doing the initial tests on the, the intimate swabs from the Karakata victim, which he said all but one or two of them um, showed up as potentially positive for semen. And so they were then sent off down to the DNA lab and, and that's what we heard last week that, that, that they came back that, that they did come back and that that was this sample this extract that then sat in a box on a shelf at, at Pathwest for many many years without um, without an owner really or without knowing whose DNA it was um, but we now do know whose DNA DNA it was and that's then that's Bradley Robert Edwards so it was Mr. Blooms that actually started that whole process in that lab um, hence why he's being um, called as a witness and hence why he's being uh, 
questioned and cross-examined so closely because at the very start of, of this process, um, uh, right to the very end, we need to know everyone who's possibly had contact with this uh, with these samples. And then um, in uh, sorry, and then the night, and then as you say in nineteen. 19- in 96 and then 97 he was also involved in testing on on uh, exhibits and samples from both jane and kira so he's one of the one of the only scientists i guess that was involved um uh, physically involved in all three of those uh, of of those women and was he asked about just how much they knew about cross-contamination back then in 95 and 96 uh when he was handling these samples yeah, he certainly was, and he was he he was probably one of the most um, advanced, st- yes, sta- yeah, mm. well, and staunch witnesses. I was going to say, mm. Ali, actually, one of the you know the, he he was very very vocal in in some of his answers about yeah, well, of course we knew we were we were intimately involved in this, and we and we, and we definitely knew the possibility of contamination and and and, and infection of ourselves and others, and 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 uh, he was you know really vocal in, in saying yeah we knew and as as far as our processes went um back in the day they were as um as solid as they, they possibly could be and um even sort of went on the front foot and said um uh, you know i i reject and and go against any um suggestion that um that we were taking shortcuts particularly in cleanliness and he said because of his microbiology background and the fact that he was also very keen on research he researched everything he said as a scientist we try to find out what's happening we want to find out more so he was very very proactive about um, any new developments to do with dna or cross-contamination although it was still all in its infancy back then he was still way ahead of the pack as far as trying to um find out what the latest was and hence he said he was super super careful uh, and doing things that weren't uh, regulatory but he did them anyway with the with protective gloves and so forth and um, this is where I think towards the end with the labeling um, which we only heard about it was a short day today we only sat for the afternoon because the court was used for a, a welcoming ceremony for judges this morning so we only got a few hours in today and just as he ended uh, we were talking about the labelling, but he was very, very measured and methodical with his answers, straightforward. He said, look, I'm just trying to absolutely get everything correct here. And he's been retired for some time, but he's handled thousands of cases like this. And um, he said each one has taken great care with the recording. The, I mean, we're told we're going to... We've, about to see a million documents. I feel as if we've already seen a million documents because we've just seen running sheets, recording sheets, data sheets. Um, it just it is quite brain numbing by the end of the day. But he he has recorded everything quite faithfully, and he, he's trying to identify writing and initials. and And he said, "Well, they're they're people who are, I think are going to hear from further about why this has got no label on it and why this one has got a mislabel on it. That sort of thing." And was he even in depth in terms of, you know, when he's drying samples and, and what room they go into? And is there any chance in, in that room that, um, you know, DNA could be sort of, you know, almost leaping from one place to another? Yeah. Well, that was, that was one of the main bulks of the questioning today was about what happened to samples and swabs once they were uh, uh, um, dealt with or, or once they'd had that initial process done to them and he explained that because they were using 
sterile water to um, extract biological material off so they could be run, then the initial um, swabs were also then left a little bit wet. And so he went, he explained how they would then be, the, the tops of the tubes just would be left open a tiny little bit and then they would be placed into an oven, not not the oven in the, uh, in the mess hall, but a, a specific specific drying oven that was used to dry exhibits and he was asked well you know do keep were all they were they all sort of just shoved in there together he said no they were kept in batches in specific cases but different cases would be in the oven at the same time and then he was asked well would there be any possibility that there could be any contamination um, through that process that open tubes being placed in an oven could possibly contaminate each other and he said I can't think of any mechanism that that would possibly um, happen and that DNA just do- doesn't just you know leap out of a of a jar or a pot or a tube on its own and start flying about inside so he was quite strong he was quite um, as I say quite verbose in, in the way he answered but he was also quite clear in the way he answered and also um, you know quite strong on the processes and methods that Pathwest used even even back then. We heard in a previous podcast from Dr. Cook who said that that you know there was nothing to suggest that um, Jane Rimmer or Kira Glennon had been sexually assaulted. Did Martin Bloom's evidence differ from that today um, in, in a subtle way? Well, um, we haven't yeah. really we haven't really gone into we were going through Jane Rimmer. Um, Doctor Cook said that, but he said it couldn't be ruled up because of the mm. state of the bodies. There was no evidence, but he said it still couldn't be ruled out because the um, the decomposure of the bodies was uh, and uh, was instrumental in him not being able to say one way or the other. We were go- getting into um, the DNA with Jane Rimmer and Kira Glennon. Um, we're getting into an area there where we have got problems talking about some of that, mm. um, intimate parts, but Tim, you can carry yeah. on with that. Yeah, well, so uh, as I mentioned at the, at the top, Mr. Blooms, because of his seniority and because of his you know, experience, he was obviously tasked with, you know, with doing a lot of these of these bigger cases and Jane and, and samples from both Jane and Kira did come across his desk and then his bench and he was involved in, in the sampling of those um, and he was asked specifically um, you know whether whether uh, the intimate swabs had shown any um, other you know um, bodily fluids um, other than from the, from Jane or Kira and um, and he said no and then he was specifically asked by Mr. Hollingsworth, who was the prosecutor doing the questioning today, whether that meant, um, or whether that could say definitively one way or the other, whether um, those bodily fluids had ever been on those, uh, on both Jane and Kira. And he said definitely couldn't say one way or the other because of decomposition, and particularly in Jane's case, because we know her body had been left open to the elements for 55 days until she was discovered and Mr. Blues was was once again quite solid in saying we know that that decomposition means that bodily fluids either your own or from someone else will degrade and therefore um, just because they weren't there when that test was run doesn't mean they were never there we just can't say one way or the other well as we know it is quite an important question so 
We contacted our DNA expert, Brendan Chapman, about that just to get some clarity on the lifespan of sperm. And he told us that there's no research to guide us on how long sperm or semen will persist in a decomposing body. Obviously, it's hard to study. Um, he's found one um, unsubstantiated reference suggesting one to two weeks, but it's anecdotal. In living individuals, there are reports of detected semen or sperm cells up to about a week after the assault, but it's rare, with a significant decline in ability to detect after about 48 hours. So that really does tell us that we really you know, cannot read anything into these results that are coming back as a negative result. Yeah, and it was interesting, Mr Bloom's actually gave some evidence about that himself today in terms of when they are testing um, for those bodily fluids, there's a specific um, test that they do under the microscope that looks at the, uh, the amount of um, whole sperm cells compared to just the heads. And uh, apparently, the more whole sperm cells there are, the more likely it was that that deposit was left recently. Um, and, uh, and so, obviously, there is a way to tell, even by... by I how long that um, that deposit has been there um, in terms of the ratio between heads and whole sperm cells, um, and and what Brendan's um, very kindly sent us there um, out of hours um, would would sort of concur with what with what uh, Mr Bloom said today that uh, there is absolutely no doubt in his mind that the amount of time that the the bodies were left to the elements would have had an impact um, on any deposits left there. And was Martin Blooms asked about the risks of secondary transfer, which is what we discussed um, in length yesterday in the podcast? Yeah, in general terms, he was, uh, and, and, and his awareness of it. Um, and once again, like Ali said earlier, he was he was he was very aware even back then, and, and took obviously took some pride in in, in knowing the latest um, advances in technology, um, even back in 1997. Um, but I've got a feeling we'll get to a, a, to a bit more of that tomorrow as well, as as, as well as this labelling issue. Um, and uh, I think there'll be one other issue concerning Jane that that um, that. Well, Mr. Blooms might be uh, might be pinned down on by Mr. Yovich as well. Maybe we'll go back to that in a little while. And you both mentioned the labelling issue, which was discussed in court today. So, tell us a bit more about that. What was the mix-up or the confusion with the labelling of the of the samples? Well, that came towards the very end of today's hearing, which um, I said was a short hearing, and it seemed that um, Paul Yovich wanted to finish on that. We finished a little bit early. Normally, they'll let it go through to the next thing, but he wanted to start afresh tomorrow morning. And this was where we were shown two documents which referred to a urine sample and another uh, sample taken, an intimate sample taken from the Karakata rape victim that had no label on the little containers and it was documented twice and he was asked, well, was this your handwriting or whose initials were this? And he he said he... he was sure that he thought there were other um, technicians or somebody had handled it and no doubt we will hear from that more tomorrow because the urine sample and the other one had no label written and the other one had miss and it wasn't a missing label he got he got quite intense on that didn't he tim mm, yeah he did yeah he did and as i say i'm a, he had been quite strong all day on on practices and procedures, um, and uh, when that was brought up with him, um, I think well, I got the impression it took him a little bit by surprise, and he was a little bit um, 
a little bit flummoxed by it. But I mean, given the, given the length of time um, that has passed, as we've mentioned so many times, um, so yeah, I, I, I get a feeling we'll, we'll return to that quite quickly in the morning. Given the detail of this forensic evidence, is the courtroom as busy as what it was in the past? Not so much so. Not, not as much, no. Our parents are there. Um, Bradley Ebert's parents are there every day. Um, there weren't very many people sitting around them. Um, Kira Glennon's father, Dennis, is there every day. Um, and apart from that, there's no, it's dwindling a little bit. I think because of the, the nature of the evidence that's been given, obviously, when live witnesses are there talking, it's quite different from this meticulous, methodical. Um, I, I really think that anyone who wants to be a forensic pathologist or student should be in there taking notes of what to do and what not to do because they are covering absolutely every step by step aspect of forensic pathology. And yeah, as, as we discussed with Shane and Brennan and Damien yesterday, um, it, it is hard. It is hard to concentrate on, on, on very scientific, very detailed, very um, specialist sort of areas. Um, and uh, so, uh, yeah, I think Ali's right there. I mean, the, uh, the, the, the general public um, that have been attending um, has dwindled a little bit. But that's not to say that there's, there's still not a decent crowd in there because there is. Um, along with um, along with all the police officers and uh, and other court staff, it's it's still a pretty pretty full full courtroom every day. Yeah, and as you mentioned yesterday, Tim, um, the West Australian Police Commissioner also attended court yesterday, mm. which was a very unexpected uh, guest. Did you find that surprising, Ali? I found it totally astonishing. Um, it's something if a jury is present, it would be um, almost grounds for. Uh, objections because um, our courts are always seem to be there's a separation of powers of the judiciary, the legislative, the executive. I'm sure the judge would have been a bit astonished to see him come in because he, he came in during evidence was given. It was testimony be given in the witness box and um, he came in. Mind you, he wasn't wearing his uniform, so he slipped in, but then he shook hands with Dennis Glennon and he went to the next um, row up and shook hands with all the police officers, which I, I found quite curious um, to come into a trial. Now, he did state afterwards that he's there to, to G up the uh, the boys and to support the prosecution, which, again, is a in a trial um, where you meant to... I mean, the prosecution is meant to just present the facts... Um, it just, to me, uh, very curious and astonishing that a police commissioner would come down there and in open court um, show this display of, I don't know, what, what, it was just very, very odd. I guess, though, it is his team and, and their their case in terms of the officers that are giving evidence and what have you. He said he was doing it to, uh, to just um, thank them, but I thought to wait, why wouldn't you wait for the break? Um, why would you come in while evidence is being given? And... I understand that he did play a part in, in this with when he was um, an assistant deputy commissioner, that he was playing a part in the DNA thing. But this he only stayed about 10, 15 minutes. Um, it was just a, something that's I found very unusual over the years. I, I remember during other trials when, like, uh, Premier Brian Burke came down, there was, that was just headlines every day that he'd come down. And, of course, this is a trial without a jury, so it's different rules. But I don't know whether the judge would have been happy about someone with such a high profile coming in um, to his trial. 
And you mentioned yesterday, Tim, it was quite an ironic day for the Commissioner to be there because he did actually, uh, he was the person who took carriage of this um, sample and had it sent to to the UK for testing, which was the breakthrough. Yeah, indeed. And I mean, I, I, I take Ali's point that, I mean, he is, he is obviously the police commissioner of any state. He's going to be a high profile individual. Um, he's been around law enforcement many, many years. He's got, he's got federal um, experience as well as fast state experience. Um, I didn't. I didn't find it as unusual as, as Ali did. I, I mean, it, it was. It was. It was definitely a talking point yesterday. No doubt about that. And, Ali, and Ali's absolutely right. If there had been a jury there, it would have been. It would. It would have been seen in a completely different way. Be interesting um, to see what a defence lawyer thinks of it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It would be. It would be. Into, well, I, I'd be very interested to be inside Mr. Yovis's brain at any point <laughs> this trial because uh, we'd be getting a lot more uh, serious than, than we are at the moment. But, uh, but yeah. Uh, I, and, and once again, he's he's an individual, you know, mm. taxpayer of Western Australia. He's allowed to be in court as as as, as anyone else is. But uh, but yeah, it was certainly a talking point. Well, as you mentioned, it was a short day today. Do you know what's in store tomorrow? Yeah, so Mr. Blooms is back on the stand in the morning. Um, Mr. Jovic warned us all that he's got a fair way to go um, with his cross-examination. And one of the things I think that might be raised with him um, during Mr. his opening, Mr. Jovic um, pointed to these incidents of contamination over the over the journey in Path West, not the specific one that he would love to be able to prove, um, but other ones involved in this case. And one of those was one of the intimate samples taken from um, Miss Rimmer, which was later, very much later in 2017, it was tested by a UK lab called Cellmark, um, and that popped up a, uh, a male DNA um, profile, but not the one they were looking for. It was it was one of the ones for, of a of a male scientist at Path West, and so now we know that it was Mr. Blooms who was involved right at the start of these um, um, these the processing of these samples. I am pretty sure that he will be asked about that tomorrow, given that he was one of the male scientists that worked on it right at the start um, of the process. Um, and then that, so that will then um, feed into um, Mr. Jovic's um, hopeful narrative of of a, of a, of a lab that wasn't uh, as professional as it as it possibly could have been which as Ali mentioned earlier this mislabeling and and and, and no labeling there was just a no bit of a labeling yeah. yeah there was just a bit of change of tempo towards the end enough that as your mind's drifting and you're daydreaming you sort of instinctively pick up your pen when you hear his <laughs> tone change a little bit yeah. <laughs> and yeah. that was just as it ended yeah so that's where I think we might go tomorrow which if we do will be will be very interesting because that will be the first real um sort of blunder that Mr Pathways blunder that Mr Yovich can specifically point to and ask a Pathways Pathwest witness how could this have possibly happened Okay well we'll all pop our lab coats back on and and head back into court tomorrow thank you both for your time today and thank you for joining us we'll be back tomorrow with Tim and Emily join us then for day 38 of Claremont in conversation This podcast was produced by Kate Ryan and Alicia Preedy and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Audio files were provided from the archives of the Seven Network and the West Australian. 
Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. Enjoying this podcast? If the story behind the headline matters to you, then you can count on thewest.com.au to deliver. For more on Claremont the trial, follow the live blog. Watch the nightly news updates and sign up for daily email updates at thewest.com.au. Subscribe now for just a dollar a day at thewest.com.au.